I am very excited to uh, talk about our topic today. So um, I first want to kind of start off with a question. And that is a question, um, so a lot of people have visited a museum. Has anyone had a particular exhibit in a museum that you just remember, that you love, and like that is just something that from a, you know, any time in your life that you can just remember going to see a certain exhibit in a museum? Want to share? Do you mind sharing? Contrast, yeah. The Frick Museum in New York. Yeah, thank you. Anybody else have anything they want to share? Yeah, exactly. So that's something I wanted to share is a little bit with one of the experiences I had when I was very young. It was somewhere between seven and eight. And uh, we went to visit a family. We lived in Ohio at the time. We went to visit a family friend in Chicago. And so we went to the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry. And it was the early 90s. That's kind of my ballpark years. I'm like, I don't remember if it was seven, eight, something like that. And I just remember seeing this exhibit. And it was an exhibit about AIDS. And the AIDS exhibit, I was particularly drawn to this one sort of, it was a screen, and it had an interview of a person who had been diagnosed with HIV. And then they did periodic interviews of him, you know, every couple months for the next two years before he had passed away. So I was just struck by these interviews, and I just kept kind of watching that. I was mesmerized. I, kind of stood, I mean, I stood there and watched the entire thing you know, as a small child for, you know, through the whole thing. It must have been, it seemed like it was an hour. It might have actually been an hour of these interviews because each one had a segment about, you know, two to five minutes long. But I was just amazed at how this young man, he was very young at the beginning, and he was still very young at the end, and how his transformation accelerated throughout these couple of years, and how quickly his condition deteriorated, and how his physicality had deteriorated. Somebody who was so young and seemed so vibrant uh, during those first couple of interviews, you know, being diagnosed. Um, and then going through, and he was diagnosed then with Kaposi sarcoma, which is a common um, opportunistic infection that is acquired by AIDS patients. And how his skin changed because of that. And then how he needed, eventually he needed a ventilator because he wasn't getting enough oxygen because he was in such a late stage. And I was just amazed. I was just thinking, you know, how could something do this? How could something cause somebody to deteriorate from such a healthy state to, you know, looking almost like he almost looks like he is aging as well in just two years to be much, much older and he was eventually um, died. And it just, it, it caught me. And there's also this other fun little thing that was in the exhibit where they had this, it was on the ceiling 
So it was one of these things where you pulled down, you pulled the rope down, and it was on springs, and there were a bunch of tennis balls on the, the platform. And you pulled it, and the tennis balls flung up to the ceiling. And on the ceiling, there was Velcro. Right? So most of them would stick. Right? Some of them would stick, and some of them wouldn't. And that was an idea of how viruses stick to cells. Right? How the HIV virus was supposed to stick to the ceiling, just like viruses stick to cells. And it was just like, to me, I was kind of thinking like, OK, they stick. Like things are just going to stick there and, and wait until there was a little thing that brought them all down, kind of, that went around and around, right? So it was this exhibit, and I just kind of, it always kept in the back of my mind that there was something out there that we didn't know a whole lot about at that time, right? It was still before um, a lot was developed about HIV and a lot was known about it. And at that same time, around that same time, Magic Johnson was also diagnosed with HIV. I don't know if anybody remembers that back. Um, and they had an interview with him on Nick News. I don't know if anyone's familiar with Nick News. Right? <laughs> but, uh, it, you know, so that we would watch Nick News on Sunday nights, and that was something that they had on it was uh, Magic Johnson. So just kind of, you know, again, seeing someone very young, very healthy, and thinking, like, wow, is his life going to be like that man's life that I saw deteriorate? This very young, healthy person. And uh, watching people ask questions of him and seeing how he handled it. And... And then how do you talk to people who are in those situations? And how do doctors handle it? So I had a lot of questions. I had a lot of questions. I was very interested, very invested. Um, and I just sort of, that, that kind of sat, right? Sat for a long time. And I would occasionally read, you know, when you're, when I was younger, you know, for reading for fun, I started reading fiction books. But then I found that I actually really liked nonfiction a whole lot better. Um, so I would read things. They were kind of half fiction, half nonfiction. So things like The Hot Zone, right? Uh, there's another book about Ebola that's about the first Ebola outbreak, and it's much more representative, much more just like, more fact-based, as opposed to a, a sort of fact-based one like the, ha the Hot Zone. And I just I was fascinated by how something that we cannot even see can ravage so like go through a population and just decimate populations. And so I really went into my undergraduate degree trying to, to understand and to wanting to learn about this. But in order to really learn about viruses, I had to learn about biology and chemistry first. So I didn't actually get a whole lot of chance to really learn about viruses and pathogenesis until I got to grad school. And so when I was looking for graduate schools, I was looking for schools that specifically had uh, a very strong virology and a strong viral pathogenesis a program so that I could learn about, finally learn about viruses and viral pathogenesis in a very deep level. And I also knew that I didn't want this to be uh, just because of, you know, as just something that I was interested in terms of I wanted to understand the biology. I definitely did. But I also wanted to see and see how we look at the strategy of, okay, we have an emerging virus, so we have something like HIV. And how do we care for the people? Right? How do we care for the people? How do we approach it as, you know, as a community? How do we approach it as a, as a worldwide concern? And what are the steps that we take in order to uh, combat different viruses and really help either you know, suppress them or treat them? And how do we help people who are dealing with them without making them feel dehumanized? Which can be easy when you're trying to think about putting people in isolation. Um, 
So it was kind of a combination. I don't want to just, I didn't want to focus on a program that was just going to lead me down towards just looking at the science of it. But I wanted to say, okay, well, well, how can I incorporate some sort of service with what I'm learning so that I can keep the contact and keep uh, communicating what I'm learning to the public? Right? So that's what I was looking for programs that I could do that. Um, and at the University of Maryland, I found a program that had an amazing viral pathogenesis. We had a group that there were some that worked at Maryland. There were some that worked at the NIH, FDA, USDA. So we didn't just learn about one type of virus, but we learned about all different viruses across that infected all different species. And people were working with several different types of species. So most virology programs do focus around things like HIV around HIV specifically because it is something that has been such a global health concern for so long. Right? But as, as I carried along in my career from the time I learned about it when I was you know, seven or eight up through high school, it started not being so much a problem of biology, but a lot more being a problem of public health and how do we get what we have, right? We have these drugs, these antivirals that work very well. Right? Magic Johnson, so why? Right? So, they work very well, but there's a whole lot of people who don't have access to them. So how do we take something that, you know, we do have a, I don't say a cure for, but a very good treatment for, and how and why doesn't that get access to all the people who really need it? So I wanted to understand how that happens, how those decisions are made, um, how that works with the virologists, and how it also works with the public health sector. So in my, yeah, in my PhD, I really got an opportunity at Maryland to work with people who worked on influenza, who worked on um, different things from plant viruses. Right? So there's a lot of people who worked on plant viruses. We always don't think of necessarily our plants getting infected, but they surely can. And they can create huge problems. Uh, they create a lot of famine, and they have historically. And we also think about animal viruses, so things that infect just animals but maybe could possibly also jump into different species. So we learned a lot about, about a lot of different aspects of virology. So I'm hoping today that I can share some of this knowledge with you, both the history of virology. So I'm going to start there with the history, a little bit about the biology, and then some current topics in virology as well. So at any point, like I said, this is a discussion. If you have questions, please ask, because I this is something that I love reading about. This is something when I was you know, looking at putting together this talk. Um, it's one of those labors of love where you're doing something and reading and reading and reading and you're like, oh no, it's been three hours and all I've done is read. <laughs> because it's just so interesting and there's so much and I'm thinking, where's this person, where's this person? Um, when I went on to do a postdoc at the National Institutes of Health, uh, I worked in a lab that was called the Laboratory of Viral Diseases. So within the group we had, uh, I worked on human papillomavirus. We had uh, people working on uh, pox viruses that you know, are um, related to smallpox. We had people who uh, were in the influenza group uh, who also worked on SARS and MERS, which is another coronavirus. So there was a lot of diversity of information, which was amazing because you can contrast, compare, and you'll see that it's not just about at the virus, but also looking at how we respond. Right, so because the viruses, they're very smart. They have ways to combat what we have to throw at them. 
So right, this is a little bit of a timeline that I put together here of, this is very general, but I want to really bring to light that viruses are not something that are just new, right? It's from 80 million years ago. We have samples that are ancient samples or prehistory where there's evidence of, there's DNA samples of herpes viruses infecting humans already at that point. Bacteriophages, so viruses that infect bacteria, they are actually thought to transmit the genes that were necessary for developing photosynthesis in plant cells. So they're very, very ancient. Viruses, this is a constant uh, battle between virus and host and trying to figure out because viruses, their main goal are just to make more of themselves. Right? In uh, 10,000 BC is approximately when smallpox, we can trace smallpox, uh, smallpox emerging as an epidemic in India. And there is records in, 90, in uh, about 9,500 BC where plant viruses appear in the Middle East. And they can tell this information from seeing records and famine, uh, records of famine because they infected the plants, so the farmers had no food. And then also from looking at the samples as well. So DNA lasts a very long time. Um, in, by 2500 BC, measles was so common in parts of India and in parts of the Middle East that it was just considered a normal part of human development. So again, this is not something that is uh, a new thing at all. It's something that's been existing for a very long period of time. Um, even in the records, Egyptian records around 1500 BC, there's evidence of poliovirus. So if you look at the leg here of this hieroglyph, right, or this uh, image, that there's, he's got a leg that looks like it has been affected by poliomyelitis. Right? That's a very traditional uh, symptom from polio. And then around 2000 BC, this was the first records of things like yellow fever, dengue, other arboviruses, which are transmitted by mosquitoes, uh, were present in the population, and those still regularly occur today. So we have some vaccines against yellow fever, but dengue is a big problem um, in terms of where they, those certain mosquitoes are, especially in the tropics. Uh, West Nile virus, anything that's spread by mosquitoes, Zika virus. In around you know, 370 to 1300, this one, this virus called rinderpest virus. It's actually a virus of cattle. And it was, it caused huge outbreaks in the cattle and caused a lot of famine. And obviously these types of things have huge human impacts, right? This is something that as soon as they have, you know, as soon as the virus decimates a population of uh, animals, then that's, that's their well-being, that's their livelihood, and they can no longer support whatever uh, the population there as well. Um, starting from 1100, that's when the, the first, you know, to now, that's when pandemics of influenza became a regular occurrence. So pandemics of influenza are not something that has been over the past, you know, we like to think, oh, you know, we've been talking about flu for the past since 1918 or whatnot. But really, that's been going on for a very, very long time. And it's even, in the, one of the examples is in the, eight, the 1485, the Battle of Bosworth, they came down with what they called the English sweat, which was likely an influenza outbreak. So these are kind of the not as well known. You may have all heard and know that you know, as, we, as the um, Europeans came to America, they also brought with them all of their diseases. So things like smallpox, right? That's one of the big things that they say decimated the Native Americans. Uh, bugs, right? And bugs were the smallpox. And that was kind of, you know, a lot of these, we don't think of them as bio-warfare necessarily, but they are. 
right? So they would have the blankets full of smallpox and throw them on. So it's been used for a very long time. And this is not anything new. We kind of think of it as more current, it's happening now. But it's actually been going on throughout history. Um, and now we have kind of, as the global population becomes more connected, right? And we have more areas where you have dense population and people touching, shaking hands, sneezing, getting close to each other on a more frequent basis, things like public transportation and high population density. There's also these novel viruses that are being transmitted between humans and species. This is an example of something that's called zoonosis. And it's not necessarily, you know, we think of them as novel viruses, but as we'll see later, it, they may not be so new. They may just, we may not have encountered them before. So whenever we go into a place, so if we're looking at um, places in the tropics where we're going into habitats that we're going in there and cutting them down in deforestation, along with those habitats, there's going to be the viruses. And so if the viruses are present, they may be endemic already in the animal population. They may not cause no problems. They may have evolved to be living inside of those animals with no issues whatsoever. And then as soon as a human contract, like, contracts that virus or it comes into contact with, contact with a human, now there are symptoms and there's disease. So it may not just be that something's changed about the virus. It's more likely that there's something changed about human patterns and what, how we're contacting different animals and what we're doing um, in terms of how we I don't need to go up there. Approach them. So along with this, what may, you may not know is that the Human Genome Project, right, to actually look at the sequence of the human genome, has identified that up to 8% of human DNA is actually obtained from viruses. So through various ways of horizontal gene transfer, right, the way that a virus integrates, viruses can integrate into whatever cell. Well, some of them can. We'll, we'll look at which ones can and which ones can't. They can integrate into cellular DNA, and they can just sit there. And so we talk about these things like introns and exons. Right? And a lot of this intronic DNA, this junk DNA that's there, was obtained from viruses. There's much of it that was. And that's uh, significant because it's not so much junk anymore. Right? We call it junk DNA. We kind of think of them as something that's not going to be important for the biology of the cell. But they're finding that it absolutely is. Right? Yeah, the viral DNA is also present in photosynthetic plants. The transposons, again, those elements of the virus, is found in the DNA that's necessary for things like uh, the molecules that are important for receiving light for photosynthetic plants. And they're also, again, thought to be very ancient. So how the, what came first, the virus or the cell? It's going to be hard to really pull apart that picture because as we see, what a virus contains is, are the same different molecules that very initial cells had to contain. So, we'll see. Right, so I want to take you through a little bit about the biology of viruses. Because I know that we probably have a diverse, maybe some of us know a lot about them. Some of us might know so much about them. So wherever we're at, it's OK. What is a virus? Right? Maybe some of us are asking ourselves, what is a virus? A virus, we can sum up in three words. Obligate, meaning it must. It must. Intracellular, be inside. Right? It must be inside the cell. Pathogen. Right? Pathogen means that it's not looking to keep the cell alive. It's looking to just 
be opportunistic, right? It wants to use the cell for its own good. Well, itself. It wants you to use the cell for making more of itself. It doesn't really care so much about what the cell does. It cares that it makes more of itself. Right? So I had a, um, an advisor at one point who kind of thought this was a very clever saying, that if you want to know something about a cell, so if you want to know any question in biology, if you have a question about molecular biology, uh, about a cell, about how things function in a cell, all you need to do is ask a virus. So see what the virus does, because chances are it's been developing strategies to block something or make something happen in the cell itself that the cell has to respond to. So through learning about viruses, we've actually learned a lot about basic cellular biology. Right, so to look at a virus, this is kind of the structure of a virus. A virus is comprised of a virion. Right, this is what we call a virus, a single viral particle of virion. Right, and there can be different types of virions. There's either a naked virus that doesn't have an envelope or an enveloped virus. So naked viruses are a little bit more simple. They have the nucleic acid, so we have DNA inside of our cells. That's our inherited material. Viruses have either DNA or RNA, and they're packaged inside this little capsid. Right? And they have these little proteins that line the uh, DNA to keep it safe, or the RNA, and that's called the capsid. And then a lot of times they have an additional uh, capsid as well, some more on the outside. Right, and then sometimes they'll acquire what we call an, an envelope, which is just part of your, the regular cell's membrane. And a lot of times inside that envelope and on the outside of the cells, these spikes or these little glycoproteins, those are viral proteins. Those are the things that are on the outside that are necessary for that virus to stick. Right, so we talk about the stickiness of the viruses, those tennis balls. These little guys here are those sticky parts, right? So if you think about them, you know, being kind of coated with glue, that's what they're doing. They're looking for something to stick to, right? So these are just kind of some examples and some electron micrographs of hepatitis B virus, HPV, uh, adenovirus, and parvovirus. These are viruses that contain DNA. And then these ones are viruses that contain RNA for their, nucleo, for their um, nucleic acid. Right, so this is what an influenza virus really looks like right, under a microscope that is magnified many, many, many times. Right. So if we look a little bit more in detail of a virus, so this is an HIV particle. Right? There's the two RNA molecules it has in here that are lined by the nucleocapsid proteins. So it kind of keeps that genetic material safe. Right? And then they have the capsid, the proteins around it also to kind of box it all in together. Then there are some additional proteins for HIV. And then the envelope, the smooth surface is the envelope that actually comes from the host cells. So when the viruses come out of the cell, they take up some of that envelope and they put their own proteins into it. So all of these parts um, help the virus to attach to cells, get inside, make more of itself, and then leave. That's all it really wants to do. Right? That's all a virus really wants to do is make more of itself. And so in order to do that, it needs to get into the cell. So a little bit more, though, about classifying viruses. So we look at viruses and we classify viruses based on that genomic information. In other words, if there's uh, 
before the genomic information, we also look at see whether or not it has this molecule called reverse transcriptase. All right, so reverse transcriptase, we're used to thinking about, has anyone heard of the central dogma of biology? Central dogma of biology is that DNA is our inherited material, right? And from DNA comes RNA, and then the RNA is made into proteins, right? So then those proteins do a lot of what uh, the cell needs to do, right? So things from metabolism, so making and, and taking in oxygen and providing energy for the cell, and you know, to transporting cells, moving cells from one place in the body to the other, those proteins are necessary. So we always think of it, we used to always think of it as DNA to RNA to protein. So everything goes from DNA to RNA to protein. And then DNA, RNA, protein. Well, when we started studying viruses, and um, it was in the early 1900s, around 1940, they actually discovered that there was many, there were many viruses that had RNA, and then they went from RNA to DNA. So they were going backwards. <laughs> it was found they have this enzyme called reverse transcriptase that actually allows them to go from RNA to DNA and then integrate into the cell's DNA and then produce more RNA to proteins. So they could go backwards and forwards. Right, so this is how we classify them. Um, we have DNA, which can be their positive and negative sense, a single-stranded DNA, double-stranded RNA, single-stranded RNA one way, a negative sense RNA, or a, uh, another a positive sense RNA with reverse transcriptase, or a DNA with uh, reverse transcriptase. And just to give you some ones you might be familiar with, kind of, um, so these are some human viruses in their classification. So herpes virus is the large double-stranded DNA virus, pox virus, adenovirus, papillomavirus. Uh, in here, the positive sense RNA viruses, this is where you would also find things like coronavirus, right? negative sense RNA viruses, influenza virus, Ebola virus, reverse RNA, so uh, RNA that has reverse transcriptase, HIV, and then uh, the other one, reverse DNA, would be uh, hepatitis B virus, or also called hepatinoviruses. Now these are true of, this is a classification for not just human viruses, but for also all different types of viruses that infect everything from a bacteria to a uh, horse or any, any species, really. Plant viruses as well. So the question then is, okay, we have this virus, and all it wants to do is get into the cell to make more of itself. So how does it do that? The very first thing it has to do is it has to stick to the cell. It has to somehow get into the cell. So it has to have some sort of proteins on here on the virus surface that's going to allow for it to stick to the cell and get inside the cell. Once it's inside the cell, then it can release its genomic information, so that DNA or that RNA, and then it's going to make more RNA or DNA. It's going to make more inherited information. The way it does this for each virus is a little bit different because each virus can do this in different places, and each virus, depending on what genomic information it has, is going to either utilize some of the host machinery, so it's going to steal our different enzymes to make more of itself, or it has its own. So it just depends. But the real place where the virus needs the cell absolutely is in this process of making proteins. So ribosomes 
are only present in cells. They're not present in viruses. They're little structures. Does anybody know what a ribosome is or what a ribosome does? Right. A ribosome takes that RNA and it makes it into protein, something called translation. Right? So it makes it into proteins, and those proteins, again, are going to do everything our cells need to do. Right? They help our cells metabolize things. They help make more cells. They help regenerate. They help move things around the cell. They help to produce our hair, our skin, our nails. So they're very, it's a very important molecule, the ribosome. But viruses don't have them. So in order to make more proteins that they do need, they need them from a cell. Right? And it can be a cell that's a cell from an animal, a cell from a bacteria, a cell from a plant. It doesn't really matter. It just needs ribosomes. So once it makes proteins, it can then join those proteins together with its DNA or RNA or nucleic acid, and then bud out of the cell. Now this is a very simplified drawing in that there's just one going in and one coming out. Very nice. But that's not really realistic of what happens, right? This is also showing a nice big virion. Viruses are much smaller than cells. So in reality, in some cases, one viral particle going into one cell can lead to one billion viruses coming out of that same cell. So that's really kind of the size that we're dealing with. Now, not all of those viruses are necessarily going to be infectious. Because if you're thinking, if you're going from one to one billion in 24 hours, it's a pretty high processing rate, right? You have to make a billion of something in 24 hours. That's hard for anybody to do. So it's not, it's not really worried about being perfectly correct all the time, right? Not really worried about it. So it makes a lot of mistakes. It makes a lot of mistakes. And you know what? Though once in a while, those mistakes actually tend to be good for the virus, right? So maybe one out of every 10 billion it produces is actually better sticking out to that next cell. So it's changed some way in making this protein that now it can stick to the next cell even better. So now that new virus that's been made, now you have a billion of the old virus, which are pretty good at sticking to other cells, but now you have one additional virus that's even better at it. So now that new, set, new virus is going to go into the next cell, and 24 hours later, you're going to have a billion viruses that are even better. Right? So this is what mutation does for the viruses. Because they can make so many of themselves, they're just, it's kind of a random chance game. Right? They have a lot of chances to make themselves be a lot better. It means, yeah, you have to develop strategies for, against proteins that are for the virus that are highly conserved or that aren't going to necessarily have a high rate of mutation or that, so it's, it's very difficult to find viral targets that aren't going to lead to just an evolved virus. It's part of the reason that making a, um, an influenza vaccine that's going to cover all of the possible strains, which is like 144 different strains that are possible for influenza, because once you find something that's going to neutralize one component of it, it's likely that the virus is just going to mutate, and then now that doesn't work. So <laughs> there are different strategies they have against trying to do that, but um, it's amazing to see how we can become successful. It's that there are things that there are things that do work, and there are reasons for that. And a lot of times it's because they're they're not just hitting one target; 
but also trying to do so in the case of HIV there's something called heart therapy where they throw you know three four different antivirals at the same time so they're inhibiting multiple targets uh, on for HIV at the same time so the virus doesn't have a good chance of actually reproducing within the T cell Right, so there, the, the whole um, idea of getting sick when you get a vaccine is actually just your immune response, responding to whatever the vaccine is, and that's very normal, and that's supposed to happen. That's actually showing that your, mount, your, your body is doing what it's supposed to do, which is mount an effective response that's going to be lasting against those strains. So we're going to go into uh, it a little bit in terms of how a vaccine is developed and what the vaccine is developed against and how that immunity works. Because it's important that, yeah, you, you do. And then you're supposed to have, you know, every time you uh, go get vaccinations, maybe for, um, you know, small children, when they're getting their vaccinations, they say, okay, you know, they might have a slight fever 24 hours later. That's totally normal. And, you know, and, and it is. Because that's your body's innate response to a new thing. And then that's showing that the, it's doing what it's supposed to do. Right. Okay. So... Viruses don't necessarily, that is one way a virus works, is that it produces more of itself. But if it knows that it's in an environment where maybe that cell isn't ready to make, isn't able to make a billion copies of itself because there's not enough nutrients, there's not enough material, some viruses, not all, but may choose. So this is a phage. If anyone's taken like biology a long time ago, or like when, this is how we teach it for the ninth graders. Right? This is kind of the classical, and a lot of people think of viruses kind of as these little guys, the bacteriophages, when really when you're talking about human viruses, they don't look like that. But bacteriophages, <laughs> they're funny. They're kind of funny. I just think they're really, bacteriophages, just, they look so cute, don't they? All right. So they, <laughs> when they attach to the cell, to the bacterial cell, they insert their genetic information. And then there's kind of a decision it has to make, whether or not to make a whole lot of copies of itself or whether to kind of go integrate its genome into the host DNA and just kind of sit there for a while, waiting for the environment to be more favorable. And so this is what some viruses do. And so depending on where it integrates itself in the DNA, that can lead to different consequences. So this is where things like oncoviruses or viruses that cause cancer, this is where they usually have kind of the reason that they cause cancer, is they're integrating themselves into a problematic area, so maybe, um, a part in the DNA that's necessary for controlling cell growth. So if you're putting a, can, uh, a virus in the middle of that region, then all of a sudden your cells aren't able to control the growth, and so now they grow out of control. So viral integration, or sometimes they produce proteins that actually just knock cell growth kind of around. That's what um, HPV has two different ways, the integration, but then also producing different uh, proteins that will silence your normal uh, cell cycle. So it's kind of just to emphasize that this is something that viruses, by studying viruses and understanding how they work and understanding that they can do all these really cool things, um, there's been a lot of just basic understanding in science from viruses. 
So learning that DNA is our inherited material is something we learned from viruses. Right? They labeled parts of the virus that were protein and that were DNA, and they saw which ones were in the next generation, the Hershey Chase experiment. The um, alternative splicing of RNA, so something that happens where you can have exons, right? we have exons, so parts of RNA make one protein or a different protein. Right? That was something that our cells do, and that was discovered by a virus, by adenovirus. Uh, again, reverse transcription, going from RNA to DNA by Rusarcoma virus. Right? This is kind of the experiment they did with that one, looking at chickens and taking some chicken who had a sarcoma and then grinding it up, filtering it, and putting it back in and seeing that that cancer grew back in that chicken. So showing that there was something that was in that filtrate that after they filtered everything big out, there was something small enough to get through that still caused cancer, that was the virus. Um, learning that viruses are ubiquitous, right? They're around everywhere. And that they're very efficient mechanisms of horizontal gene transfer. In other words, acquiring new genes for different organisms can be done by using viruses. Has anyone heard of CRISPR? CRISPR? CRISPR is a gene editing technology. It's actually an antiviral response by bacteria trying to get rid of these old, silly bacteriophages. So we actually discovered, they actually discovered CRISPR when they were looking at the antiviral response of bacteria. And they discovered, wow, this is a really neat tool that can be utilized in various capacities. So virology has had a lot of discoveries that have been able to spread breadth of all of biology. All right, so now I kind of want to move on a little bit to current topics. So some things you might have questions about, some things that are being addressed today. Um, we're going to look a little bit at vaccine development and how vaccines are developed and why vaccines work. And then also uh, therapeutics involving viruses. So how do we develop drugs against viruses? How, uh, do we, how do we approach it? And then some viral vectors that are used for gene therapy. Right? And some things, and gene therapy is kind of a, a big word, but it's really looking at, there's a very specific and very exciting uh, cancer therapy coming out. It's called CAR T cells. And that's actually, you're using a virus to insert the uh, protein that's going to allow for your own cells to fight your own cancer. And then we'll look a little bit at emerging viruses, so different outbreaks that are <laughs> in recent history. All right, so how vaccinations work. So vaccination is a strategy that was, is actually an ancient strategy. It's kind of disgusting, but um, it started in India, and it was a process where someone who died of smallpox, in order to protect each other from smallpox, they would take the scabs of the infected individual who had the smallpox and they would actually eat them in a very ceremoniously sort of way, right? It was kind of is a practice. And so they would, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it wasn't super effective. I mean, it was effective in that it did prevent some disease from happening, um, but it's not as effective as, say, a current vaccine by any measure. <laughs> we won't be eating scabs anytime soon. <laughs> um, it was practiced until Edward Jenner in the 1700s. He uh, was working with a lot of milkmaids, and so smallpox was rampant. Right? Smallpox is a very dangerous disease uh, that was eradicated with large vaccination efforts throughout the world, and um, and it was started the the effort to actually develop the vaccination 
was with Edward Jenner in the late 1700s. He noticed there were people practicing variolation, and then he noticed there was this group of milkmaids who seemed to never be affected by these smallpox outbreaks. And so what was it about these milkmaids that made them special to not contract the smallpox viruses that were ravaging the area? And so he looked, and he was doing work with the, with the milkmaids, and it was actually, they were always in contact with, these, with the cows, because that's what they did. And the cows also were infected with another type of pox virus called cowpox virus. And so because they were getting the cowpox virus, which could infect the cows, okay, it didn't kill the cows, it didn't really do much to the cows, and it also really didn't do much to the people working with the cows. So it, it led them to in, in be immune to the smallpox. So what they did is they started to take some of those cow you know, parts and, and look at the smallpox and isolate them and then take that and develop that into a vaccine and giving them to people. And that's when there, you know, the re refining the whole process got better. So if we look at what needs to happen. The goal of a vaccine is for two key components to occur. Is that for you have two cell types, B cells and T cells that are in your blood that can confer lasting immunity. So even after the vaccine is gone or the, the virus or bacteria or whatever it is the vaccine is against is gone from their system, you still have these cells that remember it. So the next time they see it, they're gonna attack it right away. It's gonna take them no time at all, and you're not even gonna feel sick because the B cells and the T cells have taken care of it, if they squashed it. But in order to do that, it has to go through a bit of a process, and this is what all these little circles and dots are here. So if we look, the antigen, an antigen is just a part of anything that you want to develop a response against. So in some cases, it's a little protein, a little protein that you might have from the virus or the bacteria. For flu, they actually use live attenuated strains because it's better to, the more antigens you have of something, the more effective your memory B and memory T cells can be. You have various combinations, right? It's like having two types of fighters versus having 25 types of fighters against something. And so having those multiple types is very, very helpful, all right? So in order for that to occur, the antigen has to first be observed, absorbed by cells anywhere. Cells just in the periphery, cells in your nose. That's why some of the uh, flu vaccines are intranasal, right? cells in your blood. And then eventually, that antigen is going to go from your cell, and there's going to be something called we call antigen presentation. So there's something inside your cell that is going to take it, and it's going to lift it up and say, hey, this is unfamiliar to the cell. What is this? Right? And it's kind of talking to the rest of the body, saying, all right, we need to figure out what this is. Because if I don't recognize it, then that means that something, something bad is happening. And we need to, to get rid of it. Right? So the antigen is presented to the T cells. And these are the T cells of these little blue cells. Right? And the T cells can then help do a number of things. They can help make those B cells grow. And then they can also directly fight against cells that are infected. So they're not only helpful for fighting against whatever is inside the cell or on outside of the cell, they're also helpful for developing the B cells. And once those B cells develop, they can produce antibodies. Has everyone heard of antibodies? Right? Antibodies. Those antibodies can work to neutralize whatever that is. In other words, neutralizing means making it not harmful anymore. Right? So we're looking for antibody production and cells that are going to kill whatever is in there. And so once you have that antigen and those B cells and T cells develop, 
they're going to mount a little bit of a response, right? So some part of that, part of that activation of those cells is something we call cytokine production. Cytokines are basically just molecules that make you feel really sick, right? When you feel sick, how do you feel? Tired, ugh, right? Like that ugh, awful feeling. You get a fever, right? Getting a fever. That cytokine release is all part of that. It's part of developing that feeling, that yuck feeling, getting that elevated temperature. Those are all just to help develop these cells, but then also help to just your body say, okay, that fever is going to help get rid of the virus in a very non-specific way. Right? It would be bad if we had a fever all the time. No, we don't want to have a fever all the time. We would get very, we just not pleasant, right? And our body wouldn't be able to handle it. But once we get that fever and it resolves, okay, so then most of these, a lot of these cells are gone, but you have a few that are lasting. And so they'll be circulating in your body, just kind of waiting to see whatever that antigen is that you put in it again. And then it's going to be able to mount a response. And this time when it mounts a response, it's not going to make you feel sick. Right? It's not going to go through all of these steps. Because all it needs to do is, oh, those B cells and those T cells are ready. They're ready to produce those antibodies and kill those cells. So you've gone through all these stages. So in a vaccine, you go through all these stages initially just to get these cells kind of ready, surveying in the background so that when you do get an infection, you don't produce, you'll stop the virus, the bacteria, whatever it is, from growing out of control and from being able to be transmitted to new people. So it's helping stop the infection right where it, before it even starts. Okay. So there are lots of vaccines that are already developed for viral diseases. Right, so this is an image of the last known person to be naturally infected by smallpox. And she actually recovered, so it's not a <laughs> sad story, but it's, a, it's an awful disease. Um, so now that smallpox has been eradicated, there are not that many people who are newly being introduced to the smallpox vaccine. Um, but there's a lot of other ones. So there's an influenza vaccine, uh, hepatitis A, B, HPV, MMR, polio. There's a, a slew of them now that have been developed so they're helping to prevent those diseases from ever occurring inside, well, inside of your body, if you get them. There's even an Ebola vaccine that's been developed for this specific type of Ebola that was in, that's in, happening in an ongoing outbreak right now in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And it seems to be pretty effective for those who are, who are getting it, right? which is, again, that in itself is a challenge. So. All right, another way to fight viruses besides getting vaccines is through antiviral medications. All right, so again, antibiotics are against bacterial diseases. They are not against viral diseases, and they will not help a viral disease. So if you go to the, uh, you go to the doctor and you are feeling sick, which most viruses initially, they make you feel the same way because they're all doing the same thing. They're getting into your cells, and they're making you feel sick. Then an antibiotic's not going to help. So taking that antibiotic isn't going to help you. It might actually make things a little bit worse in terms of when bacteria antibiotics are prescribed. They're very nonspecific, and you have a lot of good bacteria in your body that you need. The antibiotics also kill. So again, discerning whether or not it's bacterial or viral in the beginning is a big step. You don't want to be taking antibiotics if you don't have a bacteria. Um, and because each virus is unique, there's, no good, there's not going to be something for antivirals that is like antibiotics where it's going to be killing a whole broad spectrum of them. Every antiviral that's developed is very specific to a certain viral protein 
in that virus. So again, heart therapy for HIV, the protease, the integrase, the different uh, viral you know, nucleases that are necessarily just for that virus. Those same antivirals are not going to work for any other virus because those have spent a very long time evolving to go with HIV. Uh, Tamiflu for influenza, right? That inhibits Tamiflu. You have to tell them within the first 24 hours. So if you think you have influenza and you want to get an antiviral, you have to go right away if you want to get Tamiflu because it only works within the first 24 hours. After that, the virus is already multiplied and it's not going to stop multiplication. Your body's already going to take care of it regularly. Um, interferon treatment is a very nonspecific treatment that's done. It's actually taking something that your body already produces in response to a uh, in response to a virus and kind of amplifying it. It's kind of not a very good treatment because it's, it causes a lot of other problems. It's interferon. There are thousands of different gene products that are induced when you have interferon um, naturally. So it's something that's done, but it's not really a great practice. And then nucleoside analogs, so different um, RNAs and DNAs that we can add to cells to make them look like RNAs and DNAs from viruses and trick the virus to not replicating into incorporating them. So it's kind of like tricking them to think that what they're doing is, is what they want them to do, but then it actually stops what they want them to do. Um, another very uh, lively area of research that's being done with viruses is not looking at how to stop the virus, but how to use viruses, because we can, uh, for different purposes. So one of these is the CAR T cell therapy. So those reverse transcriptases we talked about earlier, I know, you know the RNA to DNA, right, what they can do with those is they can take those RNA, those DNAs, and they can, in the lab, design specific proteins that are going to then fight against specific cancers from patients. So what they do is they take the patient and they'll take the blood cells from the patient and they'll isolate the T cells and then they'll put the viral DNA into the T cells and then that viral DNA will code for a protein that is gonna be on the outside of the T cell that's going to recognize only that patient's cancer. So it's a very specific type of uh, therapeutic, but then they can take those T cells and grow them in culture and then put them back into the patient. Now a patient that wasn't able to fight off their cancer, now they can have their own cells fight their own cancer. And that is all done possible from using the lentivirus or that, that DNA from the virus, getting it into the T cells from the patient. Yes. So this has been done successfully for patients. The big question for this now is then how do you take these CAR T cells, because this is for every individual patient. So in this process, there's a lot of specialty that's needed in terms of the people who can grow T cells successfully in a very you know, sterile environment. You obviously don't want to be introducing new things to the patient. Uh, and then also this transduction part and getting that to be consistent. Um, across patients, between patients. And then the fact that you have to do this whole process for every single patient. So it's not like a company that's going to produce a, an antiviral drug. Usually we'll just mass produce it and have a lot. You have to have somebody, it's a one to one ratio. One person has to be working for kind of each one. Mm -hmm. um, it works for many different types of cancers. 
Yeah. So there's also a, uh, another uh, variation of this that has just come out as well, and it hasn't been tested in patients yet because it's a very, very new um, observation. Uh, my guess is it will go into patients pretty soon because this technology is developing very fast. But um, it's where there is a receptor that's ten that happens to be, they think that it's on most cancer cells, so it's more of a pan uh, pan cancer thing, so it can end across multiple patients. So they won't necessarily have to do this for every single patient, but they'll be able to make this the same thing for all patients, or take a subpopulation of cells and expand them for all patients, and be able to just essentially deliver them. So again, that would just be kind of growing these T cells and being able to get them to patients in the right way. Right. And so we're going to be learning about that. We actually are reading the paper for that that was just published in our bio class. <laughs> so it's, a, it's fascinating, it's wonderful data, so hopefully it's kind of, this technology is kind of the most accelerated um, therapy that's occurring in a lot of uh, biotechnology fields because it's, it's very exciting and it's something that they're looking at that is finally kind of helping a lot of people. Yeah. All right, so, Going on from therapeutics, we also have emerging viruses. So influenza is something that is yearly pandemic at this point. Every few years, there's a new strain. So the vaccine, depending on what type of vaccine you get, there's ones that are called quadrivalent or trivalent. That has to do with how many strains they put in the vaccine. There is a group that kind of gets together every summer, like late summer, early fall, and they track. And they look and see what is circulating in usually China, because China is usually where a lot of the influenza outbreaks, um, a lot of the influenza strains are originating from because of their close kind of how the habitat is with pigs and chickens and all the different ways that flu can transmit between species. So the way that they have their farming practices permits that there is frequent spread. And so whatever is coming out of China that year is where uh, they will start looking at, okay, well, what else is happening in other places? And are those strains the ones we need to put into the vaccine? Which is why we have a yearly kind of every fall, th there's a new vaccine that comes out for the influenza virus. Um, in uh, Ebola, so Ebola, the outbreak that occurred in 2014, and there is kind of now constant outbreaks occurring throughout Africa. Right now, the Democratic Republic of Congo is undergoing its kind of worst outbreak since 1970s the 1970s. Um, so looking at how Ebola, again, there has been a, a, an Ebola vaccine developed and approved, but it is just going to the Democratic Republic of Congo, and it's only against one of the strains. Something like this that kills about 90, 70, anywhere from 70 to 90 percent of the patients it infects. Um, the one that was more recent had a better survival rate, but again, that's something that really burns out populations as opposed to um, Things like the flu, it has a risk, a high risk of infection and morbidity, as we call it, kind of being sick, but not as much mortality where it's going to um, have a low survival rate as compared to Ebola. Um, and then there's additional you know, emerging viruses. We talked about arboviruses, things like Japanese encephalitis virus, Zika virus that came out. That's an emerging virus that hadn't been seen in many, many, many years and uh, came out in Brazil in 2015, 2016. And then, uh, of course, this nice one that we're dealing with right now, 
which is actually technically called the SARS coronavirus 2, and the disease it causes is COVID-19. Um, if you're interested in looking at, so Johns Hopkins, there is a kind of a live map that's going on. I took this from two days ago from where the, the red shows where reported cases have been, and then there's a total death kind of toll going on here. And um, so it just kind of shows you exactly like in live, in real time, where it's happening, what's happening, and uh, where, where reported cases have been. But this is a little bit more about this novel coronavirus. <clears throat> so coronaviruses are a type of you know, positive strand RNA viruses. They're similar to um, things like West Nile virus. That's another type that's similar to it. Uh, it looks like this, right? This is it, the nice little spikes. It's called the coronavirus because it looks like it has a crown under electron microscope. So that's where it gets its fun little name. It spreads via respiratory droplets, which means that sticky part, we talk about being sticky, right? The virus will stick likely somewhere in the respiratory tract, which is why it causes coughing, and then transmission comes out through the respiratory tract as well. So it's likely the virus is replicating somewhere in the lungs or somewhere close to the lungs, and then coming out again in that way. And that's how it's spread, which is why washing your hands and doing normal kind of day-to-day -day sanitation is the best way to prevent from getting any viral infection. Um, the biggest chance, challenge is gonna be identifying cases because, like we said, every virus kind of presents itself the same way. You get a fever, feel kind of sick. That could be the influenza, that could be a cold, that could be many different viruses. They all look the same from the symptomatic point of view. So identifying new cases is gonna be a little bit more of the challenge because not that many people are gonna go in if they just have a fever and feel like they're flu-like, but you know, it's more of the elderly people who have immunocompromised that are gonna be more concerned uh, with that. Um, so if you have any questions about that, I'm happy to answer them, but those are kind of where it's at. It's not quite the great, horrible thing that, you know, we're, it, there's a lot of news press about it, but it's all strategy to kind of prevent contact and infection and to prevent a human-to-human -human transmission. And the, really the best thing you can do is just wash your hands to make those viruses break apart. And even from that, you can prevent infection. In many cases, it's asymptomatic as well. So you're not going to necessarily show that you have the virus, but you would still be able to grow the virus and transmit it. So that's also a possibility. Um, a reason that this might be happening is there's two real cases, right? One is that there has been a mutation that has that this virus has been able to acquire that can now, that wasn't, that made it not able to stick to humans before, but now it can stick to humans. Or that that was always possible, we just weren't in contact with the species that transmitted it, and now that someone is in contact with it, and they're able to spread it person to person. So I think really they're gonna be teasing out which of those possibilities happened, and then kind of combating it at both ends, making sure that we're not interrupting habitats where novel viruses exist so that they <laughs> we might be catching them, but then also looking at the biology as to seeing how the virus may have evolved, what's different from it, and what causes them to actually stick better to humans and human, causes human-to-human -human transmission as well. And that's ongoing research also. All right, so to kind of wrap up, I just wanna wanna have you remember that viruses have a very long history. It's not something that's just new these past couple of months or every time an outbreak happens, um, but they have, complex biological strategies that illustri illustrate those intricacies of creation. I mean, that's kind of where 
looking at it and understanding it and learning about it uh, is that it really is key to appreciation and awe of creation and the creator. It, there are so much that these little things do, and we can't even see them. So to think that that's something that intricate is on that level, is that appreciation and, and amazement we have for that is, is incredible.